Uh, we are in our series entitled The Upside Down Kingdom as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount where our King, Jesus, is showing us what it means to live in this kingdom that he has for us. And he turns the tables on the world. and What the world values, he turns and takes it the other way. And today we're talking about Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, uh, which is 809, I think, in your um, pew Bible. But the, the verse is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And as I was thinking about that, I, I, I kept thinking for hunger and thirsting. And what happens when you start thinking of hunger? You start getting hungry, don't you, do you not? And you, and you start thinking of, of different, like, taglines. I mean, companies really do their due diligence in trying to market their product to us. Matter of fact, they've created such advertising uh, taglines that we, they've got into our our just our everyday psyche. Like, for example, I'm going to throw one out to you, and I want you to tell me what restaurant it is. Ready? We'd love to see you smile. McDonald's. Oh, that was not very good. Okay. How about this one? How about this one? Head for the border. Taco Bell. Okay. There's a hard one. The fabric of our lives. This isn't a restaurant. Cotton. Wow. How come polyester doesn't have any good taglines? We make you uncomfortable. When it absolutely, positively has to be there overnight, FedEx, good, that's pretty good. Um, Have it your way, Burger King, you guys eat out too much. Priceless, MasterCard, Jack, you watch way too much TV. No rules, just right. No rules, just right. Outback, that was a pretty bad Australian accent on my part. It's another note for pastor never to do again. Um, Don't leave home without it. No. Neither. American Express. American Express. Now, how about this one? What you crave? White Castle. That was a very small group. (laughs) Okay. But it's interesting, as I was thinking about what you crave, and I remember uh, reading this article this past week about Oreos. Did anyone see this article about Oreos? where they did this scientific experiment with rats, and they gave rats, they injected some rats with saline, and they injected some of them with uh, cocaine, interestingly enough. And then they they put them in this kind of maze, and on one side they put the cocaine, this drug, for them to go get, and the other side they put Oreos. Oreos. And these these rats, when left to themselves, which one do you think they went to? Oreos. And And basically the scientist's thesis was this, Oreos are more addictive than cocaine. Okay, now it's interesting with that because food companies put things and additives and things in their food to make you want more, right? Like you just can't have one. Certain chips, you go, man, I just wanted one and now I want more. And they, and they put that in you to want you, to have you crave more. Now, do you know that God has placed a God, there's a God-sized vacuum in each of our souls that can only be filled with him. And that's, that's what we at our essence crave, the problem that we have is that we try to fill this God-shaped hole or vacuum in our lives with all kinds of things that can never truly satisfy. Whether it's power, whether it's pleasure, whether it's fame, whether it's fortune, all of these things that we try to put into our lives, and we keep thinking that if we're going to just get that, we'll have this satisfaction. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. The satisfaction that you crave is me. That's where your true and lasting satisfaction needs to be found. And that's by seeking me and my kingdom and having my 
righteousness. That's the true and lasting satisfaction. That's what Jesus says in this passage for today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Satisfied. So today what we're going to see is how do we find what we truly crave from God? And how do we take the steps, the practical steps in our lives to make the changes necessary to really live in this satisfaction that he has for us in and through Christ. But before we go any further, let's pause for a moment asking God's blessing on our message time. Let's pray. Father, we come before you hungry. And we're thirsting for righteousness, Lord. We're thirsting for a word from you. Speak to us. Transform us. Lord, help us to to leave, away, leave behind all of the things of which we've been eating on that have caused us to be unsatisfied or unfulfilled. But Lord, help us to turn to you, embrace you, and find the satisfaction that is only found in and through you for the glory and power and honor of your holy and awesome name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, before we really go way into this passage and, and delve it apart, um, I have the understanding, and, and my thesis is, is that we have a very hard time filling ourselves with the things of God because we're too busy eating the things of the world. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what do we crave? So the first thing that I want you to write down is this. We need to be checking our cravings. I want you to do a spiritual diagnostic of yourself. You ever have that check engine light go on in your car? And, and then uh, what I do is I like to go over to AutoZone. Well, they'll do a diagnostic for free. God will give you a diagnostic for free if you ask him. He'll tell you what is wrong in your life. He will bring to the surface the things that are wrong and sinful and that you need to make a change in. We need to check our cravings. And I'm just going to go through a, a brief list. This is by no means exhaustive. But I want you to ask yourself, is this what I truly crave? The first of all is this. Do you crave fame? To be known by everybody. You know, that's what I see today is everybody is willing to sacrifice their integrity. They will sacrifice their purity. They will sacrifice their, their faithfulness just to get a few minutes of fame and to get their name in the news and, and everybody talking about them. Miley Cyrus, classic case in point. This is a girl that has sacrificed everything to humiliate herself in the sight of God to get everybody talking about her, buying her music, She'll sacrifice everything to do it, to get fame. And there are people here today that will do anything to get hits, to get looks, to have people value them, to tweet them. They want it all about being known and being famous. I mean, there are even pastors out there that are willing to sacrifice their, their fidelity to the Word of God to fill the church with people. And, and in doing so, they're, they're sacrificing their souls. Janet Parshall on Moody Radio Great, great show. If you ever get a chance to listen to Janet Parshall, very smart woman. And she said, you know, if you, um, you want to get a lot of people to call you and want you to know about you and, and put you in the news, say something heretical. Say Jesus had a wife. Say Jesus was not the Son of God. And, and call yourself still a Christian, and people will be knocking down your door. But say that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, was crucified, died, buried, and rose again, and you will never hear anyone call. Because people want, they want the extreme. They want what's false. They want the people that will be willing to blaspheme in the name of God or, or shake their fist in the sight of God. 
But that's not what the life that God wants for us. Fame is fleeting, temporary. Secondly, do you crave fortune? Fortune. How much money do you need to make you happy? I bet I know the answer. What is it? Just a little bit more. 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 Money doesn't make happen. happiness. It causes a lot more problems. Matter of fact, there's even statistics, I think I've shared this before, on what happens to lottery winners. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but there, it's like this overwhelming statistic of how many of their lives, not all, but many of their lives go into complete train wreck mode after they inherit all this money. Because what happens is everybody comes out of the woodwork and wants something from them, and they don't know how to spend this money, and then they don't know who their true friends are because these people are just trying to get from them something. And they don't know how to handle it, and it ends up going broke. Some of them just go completely bankrupt. Many people commit suicide. I mean, people, some of these lottery winners have had their family members try to kill them okay. I don't need a lottery. Fortune. Here's another one. How about this one? Followers. Followers. This is about power. You can put power in parentheses. This is about people that like to have power over other people and control other people's lives. That they are the ones that determine what is right and what is wrong, what is good for you to do and what is bad for you to do. And these are people that sometimes are attracted to positions of ministry just because they can control other people under a guise of spiritual authority. You have to be very, very discerning on this because it's not wrong to want to influence. It's not, a one, it's not wrong to want to serve and lead. But when it is to, to satisfy your selfishness and sinful nature, then it's wrong. Because so you're getting this perverse uh, and enjoyment from them doing what you want them to do. I've seen this happen in leadership in different places where the leaders were, had their personal lives in a mess and people found out about it and all they said, well, this doesn't quali- disqualify me for being in this leadership position. Your whole life is a mess. You should care more about that and your family. But no, you just want to lead and have this respect of other people and, and tell them what to do. Many of us have that perverse desire. We want followers. So we have to, to check that desire as well. Now, fourthly, do you crave fantasy? Fantasy. Now, this is where pornography comes in. Pornography is the new narcotic of our age. John Piper wrote an article. It was published on October 9th, where they were, he actually called it the new narcotic. And he even gives some statistics that are very startling. He says, in America, there are 1.9 million cocaine users and approximately 2 million heroin users. And yet there are 40 million Pornography users. 40 million. And they even go to, to note what happens to the brain through cocaine, heroin, and pornography. Cocaine is considered a stimulant, he writes, that increases dopamine levels in the brain. Dopamine is the primary neurotransmitter that most addictive substances release as it causes a high and subsequent craving for repetition of that high rather than a subsequent feeling of satisfaction by way of endorphins. Heroin, on the other hand, is an opiate, which has a relaxing effect. Both drugs trigger chemical tolerance, which requires higher quantities of the drug to be used each time to achieve the intensity of effect. Pornography, by both arousing the high effect via dopamine and causing a a physical climax or release, this release affects opiates, and it's a type of polydrug that triggers both types of addictive brain chemicals in one punch enhancing its addictive propensity. In other words, it does this. It literally changes the makeup of the brain. 
literally does. It's like this. The, the chemical process that occurs is like two chasms apart from one another. And what happens is, is that by looking at an image, when you have a thought, there's a chemical process that occurs where a rope, in essence, goes across the chasm. And then you travel across it. And every time you repeat that thought, you're, in essence, throwing another rope and another rope and another rope and another rope until you have this huge bridge that is there that becomes permanent, and that thought becomes harder to get off of. Or put it this way, it's like walking a path in the woods. The more that you walk it, what happens? The deeper it gets, right? And it becomes harder to get off that path because you keep walking it again and again and again and again. It's kind of like the Grand Canyon. When the water keeps going through it, it keeps going down and creating a deeper level, a deeper level. The more that you repeat pornography, the deeper that it literally goes. And it actually changes how a person thinks and how they function. That's why the proverb says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. It literally changes the brain. It is addictive, and it's a lie, and it's a complete fantasy, and it's something that is everywhere and is taking hold in all the churches. I mean, not just the world. The world laughs at it. They think it's funny, but it's destroying Homes. Matter of fact, governments are even waking up. In the UK, they're talking about, David Cameron, the prime minister, is talking about totally eliminating pornography in the UK unless you opt out of it. So every ISP, internet service provider, will have it limited, I mean, totally eliminated. Because they're recognizing that it's destroying children and young men. And rape is at an epidemic high because people start thinking and fantasizing in these pornography things and then they try to act it out thinking that's how it is in real life and it's not in any way, shape, or form. It's a drug. It's, a, it's worse than cocaine or narcotic. I mean, uh, heroin, crack. And we think of those minds of people strung out. What do you think pornography does? And they're saying that it's affecting just, not just men, but women now, and even young as eight years old, and they're getting on cell phones, they're getting it on iPads. Parents, you better, you think that your child doesn't have the access or capability? Think again. They know it better than you do. I consider myself a pretty internet savvy and computer savvy person. I'm still amazed at stuff that I find from kids that I don't know. And then you have sexting and, and just the, the, all of that stuff that's going on now with these kids. And, and they're sending messages back and forth. And, and now even kids are taking pictures of kids in locker rooms where there was a girl who was changing after a basketball game. And a teammate took a picture and tweeted it to everyone in their school. And then the girl tells the faculty and the team responds by beating her up and smashing her head into a locker. Because she told on the team, even though they tweeted her picture to the world. See, it distorts how we think and understand, and, what, and, it, and it creates this false intimacy that is not there. And many of us live in this fantasy world. And not just pornography, it could be anything. Anything that we see is just this escapism that keeps us from dealing with the reality of our world. I mean, we lose ourselves sometimes in trashy novels or in TV shows or in movies or whatever, and we just escape. And that's not what God desires that we do. I'm not, I mean, like, you can watch film. I'm not saying you can't watch a movie, but if you see it as a form of a, of a total fantasy and you're living in that world, you need to come back. You need to come back and leave it behind. We can make an idol out of anything. See, fantasy isn't the only problem. And it's far more pervasive thing that people want more than God are happy feelings. Everyone wants to be happy, right? It's codified in the Declaration of Independence, isn't it? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of? Happiness. Do you know that it originally wasn't going to be happiness? 
It was actually property. It was property because that's what they thought was happiness. But they made it more inclusive. They said happiness. But now people have taken that as means whatever makes me happy, and that removes morality. Now, even some of our founding fathers, and some of them were godly, some were completely godless, but they had a basic understanding even of morality. So when they're saying the pursuit of happiness, it was for the common good of society, not whatever gets you off personally. That wasn't what it was about. But see, we have made it a law now that you can't tell me what to do because it's inferring from my, what we believe is a right to do whatever sin that I want. And that's not it. We have to understand God wants you to be holy before he wants you to be happy. But when you're holy, you're going to find the happiness coming. Because happiness is a byproduct of holiness. We've got that wrong. We think if we're holy, we can't be happy. And we have conveyed this image of this curmudgeon people that hate everything in the world. You know, there even was a definition that used to come out about Puritanism. Puritans were, were people that knew there was fun going on in the world, and it had to be stopped. Someone is having fun, and we must stop them. That's a poor definition. That's a very poor definition, and it's a, and a mischaracter, a misnomer of what was going on with the Puritans. These are individuals who loved God and had a great amount of joy. So we have to understand and say, what is it that God wants from us, not what satisfies my sinful nature. And it's not about these happy feelings. Instead, what we need to long for and desire with the entirety of our heart is God's favor. God's favor. Doing what, what pleases our Father. Pleases our Father. Because it's only through Christ, and, that, and it begins with Christ, by the way. Can't please God apart from Christ. I mean, God has made it that way. You can't just have this, this, this no-name God that we have in our world today. In the United States, we have this no-name American God who is just pro-America and loves America, and he's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and he's this kind of benevolent God that we talk about in Facebook, and like, oh, this God will take care of you, I'll pray for you, and you have no relationship with Christ whatsoever. Let me tell you, truthfully, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John fourteen six. You can't have God without Christ because Christ is the gateway to understanding who God is. He is the literal gate, the door. He describes himself as that. We can't get into the kingdom of God except through Christ. It is not about being, having morality. It is not about good, being good, or having this common sense American God. It is about understanding who Christ is, that he is God in flesh, reconciling humanity to himself by identifying with us, taking our flesh upon himself, and paying the price for our sins. So we have to understand that. We need God's favor because Christ himself is our righteousness. And that's what we're talking about today is thirsting for righteousness. And we can't have righteousness apart from Christ. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 30 through 31. He says, and because of him, he's referring to God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification. Christ literally becomes our righteousness. Now when God sees us who are in him, have repented of our sins and embraced him, he sees his son and we are righteous positionally in the sight of God through him. That's the process. It's talking about the process of sanctification. We, when the moment that we trust in Christ, God justifies us. And what that means is he imputes Christ's righteousness into our bank account, if you will. He pays the price for our sins. 
and he imputes us to Christ's righteousness. Now we are justified, declared righteous in the sight of God. And then we are sanctified. Now sanctified has two parts, which were, it really plays into righteousness. Sanctification means, being a, it means set apart positionally, made holy, and then it's to grow in holiness. Two states, two understandings there. We are, to, we are positionally made holy in the sight of God, and we are to grow in this holiness, in this righteousness. Now, when I use the term righteousness, what comes to your mind? I have a few images come to my mind. I don't know about you, but I have the turtle from, uh, what's the, just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. What is that? Nemo. Okay, I have the turtle, the turtle in my head. Righteous, righteous. Anybody else have that in their head? Okay, because I have that in my head when I hear righteous. Or if I hear it, I hear the other term, I hear the, the negative side, which is what? You are so self-righteous, right? And we use it as a term of being negative, right? You're self-righteous, and, and it, it's negative. So either we have this wacko 120-year-old turtle, or we got this, you know, self-righteousness. And neither one of those are the definitions that God has for us. And what, what does righteousness mean? So we have to ask ourselves a question of that. Now, there are different definitions in the way that the term is used in Scripture. First is a social righteousness. That's the quality, state, or practice of judicial responsibility with focus on fairness, justice, equitableness, and fairness. That's not quite what we're looking for. Secondly, there is the quality or state of judicial correctness with focus on redemptive action. This could be called legally righteous, whereby God is worthy to judge and fairly... Uh, in fairness and equitably, equitably in his nature and in his interactions with men. God is the only one who has the ability to judge us completely. He is himself righteous in his nature. But there is the morally righteous, which is the quality or characteristic of upright behavior. This is the definition we're working with. The quality or characteristic of upright behavior. In other words, it's being righteous in our conduct, in our attitudes, in our hearts, and in how we interact with people. It's righteous, being fair, it's just, and it's morally upright, not doing wrong, not having parts of your life that are completely in contradiction to what God has for you. So it's being righteous. Now, when we talk about this understanding of righteousness, that's why we have to get this definition that God has for us. We, I wanna, um, we also need to look further in what it means to hunger and thirst for it in a, for a moment. Now, here's where Greek grammar becomes extremely important. And remember, the New Testament is written in Greek, not in English. And uh, James Montgomery Boyce, who's a pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, who's now with Jesus now, um, in Philadelphia is where he pastored. He was an amazing commentator and scholar. He wrote this. He says, The significance of this point for interpreting the fourth beatitude lies in the fact that the normal Greek usage is entirely abandoned. So he's saying that the way that it looks is not necessarily how it's interpreted. He says it's in the genitive case, but that's not how you interpret it. It's you interpret it in the accusative. And basically he says this. We're not to ha- in the, by putting it in the accusative, it's saying that we're not to hunger for a partial or incomplete righteousness, but we're to hunger for God's righteousness and to be like him in all of his fullness. See, the language brings that out. When we're to hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's not just so I will be righteous or to be better than my friends. It's that I want to be more like God, and I have to hunger and thirst for it. So we have to understand what that means. It means this. I mean, we we need to have a definition to rescue the term righteousness, but we need to understand that we are to seek this righteousness with desperation. 
You ever been hungry before? I mean, many of us are hungry after like three hours. Like, oh, I'm so hungry. You ever been thirsty? What's the longest you've gone without water? You know, in our world today, we really don't have an issue with hunger or thirst. You know, if we're hungry, we just go to the fridge. We're thirsty, we can just even open the spigot, go to a water fountain, grab a water bottle. It's not that big a deal. But in the ancient Near East, hunger and thirst were very constant and unwelcome companions. I mean, when you're living out in the desert region, you need to know where your water is. That's why when you read in the Old Testament, time and time again, when the people of Israel would move, you get this commentary. They dug a well right away. It was so impressed upon them, they needed water because they understood what it was like to thirst and to feel hunger. I mean, to feel hunger. You ever had that hunger pain? You're a little hungry. You ever had that in a small group when you're, you guys are getting ready to pray? You have a little hunger, and it's like a little annoying, right? Try fasting. I'm not the best faster in the world. I, as a matter of fact, I don't like fasting. Um, but when you fast, you start realizing how much you rely on food for comfort and to deal with problems and mask other issues. And when you're fasting, those things come to light. And fasting, you're, you're bringing that out, and, and you start feeling that hunger within you, and, and your stomach is there, and then you start getting headaches. And it starts really kind of over-encompassing you. And, then, and suddenly you're consumed with food, thinking about food, wanting food. Everything's about food. I mean, in, in being thirsty, it's like getting your, your mouth dried up. You ever had that? Your mouth starts to dry up, and you start to lick your lips. And, and then, then what happens is your, your tongue starts to dry off and get parched, and, and then your lips start to swell. And they get blistered. That's what happens. I mean, I... I, I we have to be very careful of that because when we see this, this thirst, it's this desperation of, I need, I need it now. I can't go without it. I, I made the mistake one time when I was training for the marathon. I got on the Gilman Trail, and I had these little water bottle belt around me. And uh, I, I'd never run on the Gilman Trail yet, and I'm running on it. And I was thinking that there would be water fountains. There's, there's not any water fountains on the Gilman Trail. And I'm, I'm running, and my water runs out about two miles in. And um, I was supposed to be doing a... Um, a 16-mile run. So I was doing eight miles there and eight miles back. And then my water ran out, and I keep looking for water, and I keep looking for water, and I don't see any water, and I don't see any water. And what happens is your body starts to slow down, and your head starts to get wobbly, and I just had to turn around, and I started just walking back, and every step became bigger and more painful, and I was starting to feel dizzy. So I, I had to walk through this neighborhood where I knew my friend was, and I came to his door, and he's like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, I need water. He's like, you're an idiot. <laughs> I'm like, but I still need water. <laughs> okay? And it's true, because it's this thirst that you, you know that you need it to live and to survive. And that's what he's saying about righteousness of God. That we have to hunger and thirst for it. It has the sense of desperation. And not just desperation, but determination. It's the next point for you to write down. Determination. To be determined to get it to do whatever we need to do in order to make that happen. See, God desires that we direct and order our lives to be in conformity to his word and will. And we will do whatever is necessary to live a life pleasing in his sight. Unfortunately, many of us aren't willing to pay that price. We love our sin too much. There are times when we think we are determined, but the reality is is we aren't determined enough. I think of the story of the rich young ruler. I love that story. It's a scary story. 
for anybody that's in Christ. It really is. Because it, it, you wonder if you really are in Christ. Because here you see this guy, and from outward perspective, he's the guy that you want. This guy in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 22, comes running to Jesus, bows down to him. You're like, wow, this guy, this is, this is a quality guy. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus questions him and says, why do you call me good? There is none good but God alone. I'm sure that the rich young ruler was like, what? And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. And he starts to quote a few different of them. And then the rich young ruler ruler says, yes, but I've done these since I was a youth. And then I love what the text says next. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Loved him enough to tell him the truth. And he says to him, one thing you lack, this verse right here, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. In other words, he's saying there, you're determined, yes, but how determined are you? What is the one thing that's truly keeping you from being with me? And you truly have an idol in your heart. Outwardly, you look moral, you look like you've got it together, you seem like a great guy. But inwardly, I see your heart. And that there's something that, is, that you are keeping from me that you're not willing to part with. And that's the thing that you have to get rid of. And you have to give over to me and trust me with that to show your love for me. Now let me ask you this question. What is the one thing that you're holding on to? Now if you're truly in Christ, you're truly in Christ. Then you don't have to worry about condemnation because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have to worry about discipline, not wrath. But if you are not in Christ, then you have something to worry about. And this is what Jesus says. is If you really believe in me, then that will be shown in you giving everything to follow me. See, that's what it means to follow Christ. And that's why it says in the text, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, saying that they are so desperate and determined to fulfill that, that, that longing that they have, that they will do anything and everything to give it to Christ. Because see, we can't come to God holding on to our sin and trying to hold on to the Savior at the same time. We cannot do that. We have to have that desperation and that determination. Remember the parable Jesus told about the treasure hidden in a field or the pearl of great price? Two parables. The parable of the treasure hidden in the field, they're both in Matthew chapter 13, where this man finds this treasure in a field and he goes sells everything that he has in order to get that one thing. Or the, the pearl of great price where this man is looking around and he's trying to find this valuable pearl and he finds it. What's he do? He sells everything to get that one thing. Are you willing to give everything for Christ? I don't care if you're, you've been baptized. I don't care if you've had your name on a church roll. The question is, is, is what's going on in your heart? I mean, it's hard for when people do interviews for church membership or baptism or things like that. As elders, we can't see your heart. You can rehearse and say the right answers. There's some of people that have been around Christianity so long, they know exactly what to say. But the reality is, is, is your heart transformed. Now, I'm not saying you're never going to struggle with sin. That's not my point. We're all going to struggle. But where is your heart at? Does God have your heart? Now, for many of us, we have chosen other things rather than God. We've not given our heart over. We've done the outward things, not the inward. And if we're to live this life that God wants us to, if we want to be righteous, if we want to have this righteousness of God, which comes from Christ, but yet we are to enter into it, 
Just like sanctification, I might be positionally righteous. When God sees me, he sees his son. But yet I am to exhibit the behavior and long for the behavior of becoming more like Christ or Christ's behavior. In other words, I, want, I should be more like Jesus. I, I want to be more like Jesus and exhibit his life in and through me. And for us to do that, it's going to require us to do this. Adjust our appetites. Adjust our appetites. Anybody ever gone to the doctor and had a bad physical? What did the doctor say? What was his prescription for you, most commonly? What? Diet and exercise. Diet and exercise. So you've got to watch what you eat, right? Many, many, I see many people going, I watch what I eat all the time. I watch it go right in and right down. Okay, That's not what he's been talking about there. He's saying we need to have a diet. We need to make sure we're not eating of the table of the world. Let me ask you, what table are you eating from? The table of God or the table of the world? What websites are you going to? What movies are you watching? Where are you spending your thought life, your time? What people should you know you're not, you shouldn't be hanging out with because they're affecting your behavior? What are you doing? Are you eating at the table of God or the table of the world? We have to watch our diet what we take in. Many of us, we've been taking in trashy TV reality shows or just movies that we should never ever be watching. We're taking in these entertainment choices and we've come to compromise so much and we're okay with it. God's not okay. I remember uh, a friend of mine, I I remember dealing, struggling with this issue and I'm still not conquered on this issue, but I'm growing in it and there's certain things that I know I can't watch. I don't go there. But I remember talking to a friend of mine and wrestling with this issue, and I said, what's the criteria? And he goes, it's really easy. It's in Philippians. Whatever is pure, whatever is noble, whatever is lovely. And I'm like, nuts. <laughs> it is. Whatever is pure, whatever is noble, what is lovely. Think about such things. That's the criteria. That's the criteria. So we have to make sure that we're on a new diet. Now, what's the thing about diets? How many of you have been on a diet and stopped your diet? Okay. What happened? What was the problem? You struggled. You lacked the what? D- the discipline. Basically, it's discipline. Discipline. Now, if we're going to become more like God, and we're going to put the habits in our, in our life, these holy habits, then we have to make sure that we are disciplining ourselves and taking in the right diet of the Word of God and the things of God, which means we need to make sure that we're limiting our intake of those things that are sinful, and we're eating that which is healthy. Now, don't get the, the wrong idea of healthy here. Because sometimes when I think healthy, I'm like, Bleh. I think rice cakes. Bleh. Who wants to eat a rice cake? Bleh. Okay? We think healthy. There's good food you can eat that's healthy. Good food. Think of the good food. So you have to have our diet, but then we have to have the self-discipline necessary to train ourselves. See, that's what, when, when Paul says in, to, to Timothy, he says, train yourselves for the sake of godliness. We've talked about this. The word train in Greek means is gymnazo. Gymnasium is where we get the word from it because they understood even then there was the aspect of training, of exercise. We have to train ourselves in godliness. No one is just born godly, by the way. All of us have to grow in godliness. All of us have a next step with Christ that we have to take. We're all in different places, but what is the next step for you? How can you put that holy habit into place to grow in godliness and put that discipline in? Now, I have encountered that people don't like discipline. 
Many of us want a short circuit or shortcut godliness. We want the short shortcut. We want a microwave godliness. Godliness cannot be microwaved. Godliness is a crock pot. It is. It takes time and it takes some heat. Microwave instantaneous. Godliness doesn't have happen instantaneously. Yes, you are instantaneously transformed when you trust in Christ as Savior. You are you are a brand new creature, yes. But to grow again in that sanctification relationship to more to be more like him takes time. Ridding ourselves of those sinful habits that God doesn't want us to have and embracing the righteousness he does takes time. So we need to make sure to understand that it takes time and that God has given us this for our benefit. God has a vision for the Sermon on the Mount, and we need to value God's vision for our lives. Valuing God's vision is what we need to do is say, why did God give this to us? Now, I'm going to give you a couple reasons. I'm going to go through this quick. First of all, God's vision helps us fulfill his mission for the world. See, by living the life of, of, of righteousness that God desires, that God or the unbelievers can see Christ in us and then are drawn accordingly. When they see our behavior being transformed, they say, he is different, she is different. And that happens in our schools, it happens in our workplaces. They see you have a different set of standards that you're living by. And people are transformed by that when they find out you're honest and that you're forthright and you're not gossiping. And the reality is, is are you doing those things? I mean, being righteous, or are you engaging in those behaviors that I just mentioned? If so, then you need to repent of them. And you might have to go back and talk to some people to make it right. So we need to make sure that we are valuing God's vision, vision, and his vision is uh, to to reach the world. And this helps us fulfill that mission. It also helps us to fight our fallen condition. Fight our fallen condition. Because see, the reality is this. When you come to Christ, all of those bad things that you used to do don't go away overnight. I remember working with um, Emmaus Ministries on the north side of Chicago. They worked in Boys Town. They were working with people that came from uh, same-sex lifestyles and um, homosexual lifestyles. And what they did is, is they said, when someone comes to Christ, we have to totally help them in every which way. Because their life was immersed in the lifestyle. They even had, they had phone books. They went to homosexual restaurants. They had homosexual friends. Everything was a complete lifestyle. And when they come out of that, then we have to help them find new friends and new passions and new pursuits. And we sometimes have to be with them 24 hours a day to help them in that because they don't know how. And, 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 you know, nature abhors a vacuum. So if we leave something behind, we have to fill it with something positive and godly that God desires. So when we're filling it with something that is godly, it helps us to fight our sinfulness. So we have to make sure that we are fighting our sinful condition. That's what it helps us do. You know, it's interesting, as you're looking at this text, and we look at it again, blessed are those, those who are approved. Um, Blessed, that's what that means there. Are those who are approved and and happy, but it's more than that, a state of joy. Uh, Are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I want to focus on the second part of that verse, and they shall be satisfied. See, the idea is that the hunger and thirst for righteousness um, that we find in Christ will satisfy anyone. Jesus spoke about this type of satisfaction in John chapter 4, verse 13 through 14. We can call that verse up on the board. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, what we see here is that if we live this life, if we pursue him, then we will find true and lasting satisfaction. 
satisfaction. What did Mick Jagger say? Can't get no satisfaction. Because he, lo- he kept trying, and he tried. The problem was he was looking for it all in the wrong places. Because the only true satisfaction can come in and through Christ. Now, there is a satisfaction that this is a satisfaction that comes in and through him, but we must renew that satisfaction by taking up our cross daily, mortifying our flesh, and embracing him. That's that satisfaction that we continually find renewed day in and day out. We find the satisfaction in him, as Jesus said again in John six, thirty-two through thirty-five. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, this manna that the Israelites would eat in the Old Testament when they were wandering in the wilderness. But my Father gives you the true bread for heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to, her, said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus goes on. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, this thirsting that he's talking about is we have to pursue it in him. We long that righteousness that he possesses, that we have by faith in him, and that we enter into again and again by crucifying our flesh and, and, and directing our, uh, our diet and eating of him. We stay in that satisfaction that we have in and through him. So, if we've had a bad physical, I mentioned before, what do you have to do? You have to go on a new diet, right? And then what do you have to do every day? You have to eat right, right? It's a daily choice. So taking up our cross daily, that's what we're talking about here. That same is true for us spiritually. We have to eat right every day. Now, Kellogg's has this cereal for those who are health conscious and on these, these diets. It's called Smart Start. Smart Start. So I want you to be eating smart. Eating smart. Now, this isn't something that I came up with. This is a guy named Paul Meyer came up with this, and he actually came up with it in a totally different context. But um, I find it very applicable for the saints of God. Um, and, and he says this. First of all, if we are going to live this life God wants, we have to put the holy habits in place. Now, the reality is, is many of us have tried to start those habits, but it's like starting a diet. We start off well and we end poorly because we have unrealistic understanding of how to go about it. So what I'm going to give you now is how to build smart goals of godliness. So you can put these holy habits in, and you need to figure out what is it that God is calling you to do. What is that next step? And here's how we're going to go about it. Because I know that many of you have tried reading plans, you've tried praying, and you've got it for a little bit, and you failed. We need to not just look at exactly a concrete plan, but let's look at the understanding behind that plan. Okay? And here's, here's how it works. First of all, if you're going to have a goal of godliness, and you need to have this goal of something you need to do as you put this holy habit in place, you need to create a specific goal. Specific. And I want you to think of that in your mind. Maybe God's calling you to read the Bible more. Maybe it's to read in a year. Maybe that's too much for you because you can't do that this stage of life. Maybe God's calling you to read a book of the Bible in the next month. Be very specific on what God's called you to do. Don't just say, I want to grow in godliness. Okay? Great. How are you going to go about it? It's like, I'm going to run a marathon. Great. What are you going to do? You're not just going to run it overnight. You're going to have to put the pieces in place and to train and reorient your life to do that. The same with walking with Christ in a greater way. We have to have these smart goals. So we need to be specific. Say it's reading the Bible. Say that it's witnessing to people. Finding 12. Finding 12. Vicki, by the way, did a fabulous job. You did a great job. 
today. I was encouraged and challenged and great insights and uh, just way to be obedient. Be obedient. And, I, and I'm thinking of finding 12 for myself. And she mentioned this, finding 12. We passed out these stones. And if you want to get some stones, we have them back on the sound booth. And, and have 12 conversations. And each time you, you have a conversation of someone, you write that name down and you put it in there. Now, see, that's a specific goal, to have 12 conversations. That's a good goal to have. It's very specific. Have a spiritual conversation where you're in the process in some way of sharing Christ. Either it's inviting them to church, outing yourself as a Christian, starting asking them about their faith, where is, you know, just start the conversation and then see where God leads you. That's a specific goal. Secondly, it needs to be a measurable goal. A measurable goal. How are you going to quantify this goal? How are you going to see if you are meeting this goal? What are you trying to accomplish with this goal? How often will you do it? Is it daily? Is it weekly? Is it monthly? Once a quarter? Once a year? What do you want to do? And how often uh, will I know it's done? See, that's the great thing about the Finding Twelve. It's measurable. You have 12 stones. You'll be done with it, and, and that's just to get you going. Not to, you can have much more, many more conversations than that. That's just 12. That's just starting you off. But that's measurable. What is your goal? Maybe I want to read three chapters, or I want to read this book. And, and think of it. Don't just say, I want to read the Bible. Pick a portion of the Bible to read, or a time to pray, or something to pray about. Just don't say, I want to pray more. Say, I want to pray for this more. Because if you say, I'm going to pray more, you're going to get into pray, and you're going to think of everything that you need to pray about, and then it becomes this giant list, and then it's no longer a conversation, and then you don't want to pray anymore because you're just going through the list. Remember, it's a conversation. So say, I'm going to pray, I want to pray more for uh, our, our church's outreach. And that's, that's, a, that's a good tangible goal. Now, see, that leads us to the next part of it. It's an attainable goal. Okay. Don't say that I'm going to, I mean, some of you, there might be a D.L. Moody here. D.L. Moody said he would never go to bed without uh, having a conversation about their soul. And there were times that he would be three in the morning and he just got in and he's like, I didn't have a conversation today. I got to go out and have one right now. Now, many of us can't say I'm going to have that type of conversation every day, but we can have one a month. That's an attainable goal, completely attainable goal. What is that for you? Reading the Bible. You say, well, I want to read it every day. Well, maybe you have small children. Maybe that you, you know, maybe an accomplishment for you when you get up in the morning or, or through your day is taking a shower. <laughs> okay, being around young moms, that's an accomplishment in itself at times. Maybe whatever it is, but you have to say, maybe I'd like to read my Bible three times this week. Let's get you started. Rather than say every single day, because then what happens is, is you miss a day and then you're like, oh, I'm overwhelmed and I don't want to do this anymore. So make it very attainable. Let's start small. Baby steps. Take the step. Okay? Take a step. And after a while, you take steps, you'll find that you've taken a giant leap. So it's, it's measurable. It's attail, um, attainable. And make sure that it's relevant. Relevant. Now here's this. You want to say, maybe you're saying, my goal is I want to memorize Scripture. So you start in the book of Leviticus. Well, you know, Leviticus is a great book. But it's not the one I think it's going to be most applicable in your life situation. Try to memorize that which is going to be applicable in your life situation. Maybe you're struggling with temptation. Well, there's a lot of verses on that. Or watching your tongue. Watching what you say. Watching your anger. So that's relevant. I mean, memorizing the Levitical priestly codes, great. But I don't see you being a Levitical priest. (laughs) Really needing that right now. Okay? So make sure that it's also relevant. And lastly, make sure that your goal is time-bound. 
This is just a good way. Uh, have an end goal, something to work to. See, we're, we're ramping up for Finding 12, and we, we have a, a neighborhood development team and staff. Uh, we've talked about these things, having these things, what we call big days. More our staff than neighborhood development, but big days. And what we want to do is we need to have these four big days a year where we and you bring your unsaved family and friends to hear the gospel, and we fill this place and, and really bring home the gospel message. And Easter is the biggest big day there is. And we want to see this place completely packed. And that's when we want to look at those stones in the back right on that sound booth and see that completely filled. That's our goal. That's time bound. That will be ending in April. We need to be having these conversations. And it's to get us started. You ever had a goal and then you met that goal? You know, after running the marathon, they asked people, what was the biggest accomplishment that you felt? And they said, by setting a goal and meeting it. Make a goal spiritually for yourself. And make it time-bound, say, in the next month, in the next 30 days, or even this week. Maybe today, before I go to bed tonight, I'm going to read um, one chapter in the book of Mark. or in the book of Peter. Or I'm going to memorize one verse. So make that time-bound so it's, it's got a time limit on something to work to. It's great to set goals in that regard. And we want to eat smart. And if we're going to put these godly habits and these holy habits into place to become more righteous and have this type of upright behavior, because... What happens when you're eating right? Do you ever feel better? You ever eaten really poorly? And what happens to your body? What was that documentary, Supersize Me? Right? Remember that documentary? And how many, how, the guy ate, what, McDonald's for like 30 days? What started happening to him after he, he ate it? He, I mean, he was, you know, because that's what happens. You are what you eat. So the same is true spiritually. When we're taking in the things of God, when we're putting these holy habits into place, these smart goals, then we become more like Christ as we continually behold him. And we not only read his word, but as I said a million times, we let his word read us. And then speak to our condition that we might live a life that is pleasing in his sight. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Lord, help us to crave you more and more. Help us not to crave the things of this world. Lord, so often we've eaten the white bread at the table of the world, and we have not saved room to eat of the delicacies of your table. Lord, please help us to push away from the table of the world and embrace the delicacies that are found in and through you. Lord, forgive us for for turning our backs on you and eating these things that we know that you do not delight in, that you abhor. Lord, please help us to exhibit this behavior as we come before you and we seek to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Lord, help us to take in the things of God, to memorize the word of God, that your word might be hidden in our hearts, that we might become more like you, and that our joy in you might increase. Lord, we struggle in so many different ways, and so many people in this room right now are dealing with so many struggles and have been eating at the table of the world for so long that they don't know any other diet. But Lord, I pray that you break our hearts and help us to crave you more than anything else. Help us to long for you. Help us to take whatever steps are necessary to rid ourselves of of the sinful things that we're holding on to, that we might embrace you and that we might experience that satisfaction that only comes in and through you. Grow us. Help us. Direct us that your name might receive glory, honor, and praise. And Lord, if there's someone here today who is not yet trusted in you, I pray that they might see their sin in need of a Savior and understand that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and that by placing their faith and trust in him, they will be forgiven of their sins and they will experience joy with you and have point and purpose and peace in their lives. The glory, honor, and praise of your name 
Jesus' name we pray, amen.